That's the way I got along in life. I don't ever remember being particularly jealous of anybody, because I figured if I can't do it myself, I don't deserve to get it. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts are Devin and Gilford, George and Matthew Russell. Oh yeah, baby, Clyde Tombo. Um, it's his birthday today, or would have been his birthday. Had he not have died. Had he not have died. Do you know what uh, Clyde Tombo is famous for? Is it discovering Pluto? <laughs> he's discovering Pluto, amongst other things. He's also quite famous, as uh, Lynn and I discussed, he was also quite famous in terms of pushing for the research of unidentified flying objects in our UFO special, I seem to remember. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, I don't think he ever lived to see his planet demoted to... Uh, yeah, he died in uh, To a dwarf planet. Yeah, so yes, he died in 1997 and... And uh, Pluto became a dwarf planet in 2006. I wonder By our got... boy, DeGrasse. Yeah, I wonder if he got a heads up, though. Look at that. He lived to exact almost... He would have been 100. That's a bit annoying, isn't it? He would have been 100 years old. Just <laughs> it would have been a terrible 100th birthday present, that one. Happy birthday. You're no longer as special <laughs> as you thought you were. <laughs> yeah, but he did He did live to quite a ripe old age. He died at 90. Not bad. Not bad. Born in terrible Illinois. Terrible for a turtle, though. Is it? Or a tree. Yeah, February the 4th, 1906, Illinois, died in New Mexico in 1997. Amazing, isn't it, that the discoverer of Pluto died in 97? Yeah, it just goes to show how we're not... We don't know anything. We're, the, we're, barely, we're barely scratching the surface. Yeah, the discoverer of Pluto died after Freddie Mercury it's crazy. There is some weird connection. It's there, weird. The discoverer of the quadratic equation died before, before Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a lot of maths, and yeah, maths was the early. But then it seems like physics. Is Everyone has just been a bit late playing catch up ever since. Uh, George, welcome to the podcast yet again, helping me out here. The very first qu- uh, little story I wanted to talk about is. Um, not one that we've sort of gone over, is it? But I really wanted to talk about this star formation near the sun is driven by expansion of the local bubble. So this is a paper that was published quite recently in Nature, 12th of January, 2022, by Catherine Zucker et al. She related to Zuckerberg. No, I don't think so. I think don't think names work like that, George. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. so, so have you ever heard of the local bubble? I have not heard of the local well, bubble well, until now. Well, well, the, the very start of the abstract of this paper will belittle you because it says, for decades we've known that the sun lies within the local <laughs> we. bubble. We. <laughs> but anyway, we, we, we do, George. Us, uh, us scholars, fellow scholars. Us fellow scholars. A cavity of low-density, high-temperature plasma surrounded by a shell of cold neutral gas and dust. In other words, there's this expanding bubble. Now, the sun actually is travelling through this local bubble. So the bubble is in the Milky Way and it's this sort of 
uh, more like a bubble, or like a, a bubble, and a it's sphere with uh, very thin. Well, it's actually it, it's it's not really a sphere. It's more peanut shaped, which is quite cool, isn't it? Gaia, the space telescope, as you know, is very very good at mapping how far away stars are and how much they're moving. So it's it's been able, because it's been able to accurately get their position just right and map map it loads and loads and loads and loads it's been working out the movement of the stars so it's been able to map what exactly is going on and from this data one of the really surprising things that's that's surprising to me is that all the young stars that are formed within 500 light years of the sun all of them happen at the edge of this bubble doesn't surprise me. Uh, Doesn't that surprise you? So as this as this plasma bubble is going out into the Milky Way, it it bashes into the interstellar medium, and that is where these shock waves are sort of making stellar nursery clouds collapse. What, what is and, the uh, interstellar medium? Is it just the space in which? Well, yeah, it's just you, you know, it's, it's the just space, space between the stars. It's interstellar. It's ah. the stuff in between stars. But and the stuff in between stars is different within this bubble. Hence, it's a bubble. The what, bubble. What, what kind of things make it different? To, to, to well, it's, well, it's, outside, less, it's less dense and hotter. It's being caused by a supernova, supernovae, <laughs> about fourteen million years ago, I believe. So that was, a, well, a lot, maybe several supernova, but, um, but it. The supernova happening at the centre of this bubble, the centre where, where the centre would be now, mm-hmm. and and it's created this giant uh, bubble that's forever expanding out, and it's still expanding 14 million so, so years our, later. So our solar system's kind of in the eye of a storm? Kind of, yeah. It's 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 more like in the eye of a big burp <laughs> in the in, into space. Big explosion. It's like uh, if something exploded, yeah, and yeah. then you s- teleported into the middle of that explosion. Yeah, like millions of years later where it's still a little bit warm but the explosion's still happening it's still expanding out into the galaxy so there's kind of like front of this explosion that's like really hot and it's just going through well, decimating things. yeah we're well, not decimating thing it's, it's it's doing the opposite it's it's actually it's giving birth to stars it's pushing the interstellar medium together and all the star formation is happening on the edge of this bubble mm. but if any planet were to be you know, already there. No, I don't know because we're in it. Yeah, but we're we're behind it. But I mean, like, in, if there was a planet. No, no, I think it's all the same. Like the bubble is made from the same. Like the the, the actual the actual outer edge of the bubble. I don't think it's any different from. Right. So it's like when two, uh, one two fronts of air with different temperatures yeah. meet, they create hurricanes. Exactly, and things. or to, or or rain. So it's very much like weather front, yeah. So it's a weather front, just like a weather. So it's a weather space front. interstellar it's a, it's, weather front. Exactly, it's a it's a it's a galactic weather front, right? Where 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 and and it causes star birth. How cool is that? That is really cool. That's a very cool little story. What, what's the paper's name? The paper is "Star Formation Near the Sun Is Driven by Expansion of the Local Bubble." Does what it says on the tin. Mm. It is a cuprinol. Paper. Yeah, fellow scholars better check that one out. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, yeah. Um, there's lots of write-up in the, in the in various places, like the Wall Street Journal, if you can get past their paywall. Um, so yeah, I thought I thought we'd talk a little bit about the James Webb Telescope and the question that we were asking right at the beginning 
because it's now reached there, is how do you orbit the Lagrange point? It's a very hard question. <laughs> it's a, well, I, I feel I'm pretty glad that I looked at it because it kind of makes a lot more sense in my head now that we had a quick... Well, you're glad that you researched the podcast instead of just randomly making... No, no, no. I'm glad. But the best thing about doing the podcast is when you research it, you learn something and that's true. Really, so when you, you know, when you try and talk yeah, about Yeah, the best it, way to learn is to teach. Oh, that's exactly right. I'm, I'm not, I don't think of myself as teaching, more communicating. Being a part of the community. Yeah, being part of, you know, I'm part of the space community. Yeah, exactly. Like a spokesman for the science itself. Um, yeah, so the second Lagrange point, L2, very, very popular. And why is it popular, George? Well, it's a quite stable point for any kind of spacecraft that wants to be at any given Lagrange point. Yes, it's a it's a parking place, really. You, it's a stable point. It's like a really cheap parking spot. It is, but it's really good, L2, because the Earth the moon, and the sun, which, as you know, are the three brightest objects in the night sky, particularly the sun, mm-hmm. <laughs> is very bright. moon's <laughs> very bright as well. And if you're off the Earth, the Earth is very bright as well, and you're nearby. So the reason why L2 is great is because all of them can be behind you while you look out into space, right? Ah, so, so you're so you're kind of you're shielded from all. The, it's the same same selling point for having a telescope on the dark side of the moon, exactly. where you're shielded from noise from Earth. Well, yeah, and light from Earth, and everything from Earth. Noise from the sun. Yeah. So, the so the whole point yeah. about the James Webb Telescope, of course, is is it's got this ridiculous heat shield. You know, it's got this shield that it sits on. This amazing piece of technology that that made it very expensive, and so one side. Is extremely cold as well. The other thing about Lagrange Point out there, it's a very, it's very cold, but it's pretty stable in temperature. So that the, the one side of the heat shield, the sun shield, you're super cold. The other side, you can still communicate with Earth. Now, the other genius thing about the L2 point is that you can get into a halo orbit around it. And so you can always see the Earth so that you can always send your messages to and from the Earth, and you can always see the sun with the with the hot end of your spacecraft, so that you can power your spacecraft. So you get the you get kind of the best of both worlds. You get worlds. the best of both worlds. L two, really really cool. Right? What's the camp called for L two? The asteroid camp because they all they all have names, don't they? They do, but but remember that that only happens at L four and L five because they are more stable so you don't get trojan you don't get trojan asteroids uh, at l2 and l1 so l2's points. not that that stable then it's not stable enough for asteroids and yeah but, but and and one of the reasons the is campers. yeah and the stability the, the stability thing is a little bit oversold because even l4 and l5 aren't completely stable yeah you're dealing with com- like chaotic systems because sti- it's three bodies chaotic. yeah is, yeah yeah or more but than three it, bodies it just so yeah. happens that the if you look at if you think about it as energy if you think about it as gravity wells in a, in a in a dome in a sort of if you've got one great big dome and you're on the outside and you think of gravity wells caused by the planets the saddle points are the lagrange points well regardless of l4 and l5 being a saddle point they're still unstable to a point you know there will be a point where if you drift slightly off it you're doomed right now a lagrange point 
the thing that I think people get a bit confused is that they think Lagrange point is where the gravity sort of equals out, where it kind of the pull of the Earth equals out the pull of the sun. Yeah, so the distances are such that yeah, the, you know, the gra- like relative gra- gravity for the sun. Yeah, yeah so equals to the but that's not Earth. right, of course. It's it's a little bit. It's sort of it's, it's an approximation. It's well, close. It, it's I, close. I think it's good enough for the sort of for your for your man in the street, but yeah. not for an interplanetary podcast. Yes, yeah, so I always George. thought it's like why is it points. If it is just that, because if it was just that, you would expect it to be like, like a, a line, mm. like a Lagrange line. Yeah, and and what what it's actually more to do with is your what you're trying to do is balance out the centrifugal force, this fict- fictitional force. Well, you're, you're regarding all forces, so you're yeah. regarding the Earth's gravity, the Sun's gravity, centrifugal force. The moon's gravity. You're, yeah. you're balancing out all of these forces. Yeah, and so um, what you're trying to do is you. What you want is the James Webb Telescope to follow Earth around in its orbit. But you know, and I know that if you're in a if you're in an orbit that's further out, then you must be going slower uh, to to stay in orbit. You'd have to you'd have to be going slow, and so you'd start drifting away. So Mercury goes around very very quickly. Uranus takes. A very long time, and Pluto, I think, has only done one orbit since it was discovered, right? So it's 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 crazy. So how do you balance that out? Well, you balance it out because the gravity from the Earth and the Sun is exactly right at the Lagrange point to to uh, add. So the Earth's gravity added onto the Sun's gravity is exactly right to keep uh, the James Webb Telescope going with the Earth around in orbit. That's one way of seeing it. Now, the the, the the really good thing about the halo orbit now is like, why don't you just stick it on Lagrange point? The most amazing thing about the Lagrange point is the James Webb telescope never gets closer than 250,000 kilometers away from yeah, it. Yeah, because when, when I first heard, um, I was uh, discussing like the James Webb telescope and Lagrange points with my physics teacher, and he said uh, that it was, you know, like orbiting the, the, the point. Uh, and I, I assume like, or maybe it's you know it's just like a small, like drift from the point. But I assume that no. that anything at the Lagrange point would be like at a specific point. But it's it's literally orbiting nothing, like a blank spot. <laughs> well, it, well, it's not orbiting. See, this is I think it only looks like it's orbiting from Earth. In other words, it's your frame of reference. So if you're standing on Earth, you would look out and see the James Webb Telescope orbiting around a a um a, a nothing right and and its orbit by the way is is actually very um elliptical so it, it at its nearest point it's 250,000 kilometers away from L2 and its furthest point it's 832,000 kilometers from the lagrange from the lagrange point yeah so yeah. it's nowhere near yeah it's lagrange points i guess it it's really hard. it's it's so un like Un, uh, similar, unsimilar yeah, yeah. to what it not not you know not similar to yeah. what it what you think based on like the kind of man on the street yeah kind of so what you got to think of at, at the halo point is that you're sort of wandering around the top of a mountain so say the top of the mountain has been sort of slightly smoothed out it's in other words it's a kind of a mound and you're kind of moving around that mound where. It, it's it, it, in perpendicular to the Earth, and 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 in in this oval shape, and you're moving around that mound, 
and the, the local forces are just enough that, that it keeps you on top of the mountain. So all these per perturbations from the sun, the earth, and the moon are keeping you on that top of the mountain, and you occasionally need the odd thruster fire to keep you there. Now, that, uh, there's not much fuel on the James Webb telescope, and that's why that fantastic insertion burn by Ariane 5 to get it there exactly right. So it's going at exactly the right speed to do this thing. So if you look at it, so don't think of it as orbiting, as in going in a circle around this point. It only looks like that from Earth in the same way that Mars Yeah, the looks, retrograde. Yeah, I was going to say like this. It does a retrograde, yeah. So they, they, they thought originally that Mars was going backwards, but yeah. obviously it isn't. It just appears that it's going backwards. Yeah. It's not so, actually going retrograde. So, yeah, so, so if, you, if you were looking at Mars and, and it was trailing a ribbon behind it it would look like it did a circle occasionally mm. uh, and that's exactly what the james webb telescope is doing it's it's all all that's happening is in as it's getting perturbed by at the top of this crest of this of these this t little pocket of weird gravity where the the earth the sun and everything is interacting in such a way to, to compensate for this extra bit of uh, centrifugal force um it, it slows up and speeds up, but it's going up. So if you were if you zoomed out of the solar system, you would see James Webb Telescope sort of climbing up and going down and climbing up and going down. But you would still just see it going in a sort of for, like snaking its way around the orbit. So the Earth is going round in this in this kind of in a, in a, in an orbit, but it's doing it in a straight line around. Whereas James Webb is kind of snaking up and down uh, this this thing, slowing up and speeding up as it does so, so that it stays in line. So obviously, as it's going up, it's got to speed up again to stay in line with the with the Earth, and that's so that that's what it's doing. It's not orbiting, going round anything. It's still going in a straight line. It's just speeding up and slowing down and going up and down in a kind of. Uh, like it's on a wave. But another like an unintuitive thing is you would think that a point like this would be kind of like trying to balance a pencil mm -hmm. where any slight deviation and you've gone too close to, let's say, the Earth. And so the Earth starts pulling you more, which brings you further from the point. And then as you get further, the gravity from Earth becomes more and you go further, even further still. Mm. Kind of like, you know, like trying to put a ball on the top of a sharp point you know if it starts even rolling slightly off of that point it's gonna completely go down but it mm. isn't that isn't the case in fact you mm. can be hundreds of you know like tens of thousands of um kilometers from the point yeah and still be like still be perfectly within you know that, you don't need any thrusters to, yeah, to yeah. get back yeah i mean it, it that's the problem with those diagrams of of energy wells in 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 rubber sheets is they're only two-dimensional. They're, they're not three-dimensional. Yeah, you need to realise that the rubber sheet is, in it's real only life... analogy. It's well, it's, only it's analogy. actually, like, sheets, rubber sheets are 2D objects which uh, distort in 3D. When, it, when in reality, you're dealing with a 3D object which distorts in 4D. Yeah. But that's hard, that's, you know, you can't visualise that. <laughs> yeah, well, like, imagine, hard to imagine a lattice, like, you know, like a... I mean, they've done, I mean, you, you occasionally see the odd artist that's tried to display Yeah, that. but it's still just warping in 3D. It's yeah. not, yeah. It, you can't possibly visualise. <laughs> no, it's, it's very hard, it's very hard. Do you know what the first ever um, spacecraft was to go out to L2? 
is it a trick question? No, actually, no, there is no trick question. Is it James? You either know it or you don't. Is it the James Webb? No, 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 because Gaia, which we've just talked about, the Gaia Space Telescope that that has it, that's measuring lots and lots of stars, that's out at L two as well. All oh, right, okay. In fact, there's a couple out. There's a couple of ESA uh, spacecraft out there already. So you've got you've got Gaia and you've got the Russian German astrophysical observatory called Spectre RG out there as well. Um, but uh, ESA also spent the sent the Herschel Space Observatory out there as well. Um, but the very first one that went out there is the Wilkinson Microwave Anistrophy Probe, which, as you know, was the is very famous for taking that picture of the uh, of the background microwave the, that kind of like the, oval shape that oval yes the, the oval shape green the molida shape. map of the oval shape the heat, of the, kind yeah. of heat map of the yeah, universe uh, yes uh, as in the the moment of reionization it's the earliest picture of the light of the universe it's which is incredible so so obviously it needed to go out to l2 to get into that cool bit of space so that it's so that it could pick up that faint signal of heat so mm. L, that's why it's such a good place to go. And the Chinese sent that little uh, satellite out to L2 so that it could talk to what? The Changong one? Changi 5, which is the which is the little rover that's on the far side of the moon. Is that so, the only rover on the far side? Yes, it's the only it's the only um object that's ever soft landed on the far side of the moon. Have been litho breaking. <laughs> There's been some litho breaking. But that's that's for testing um no, the, yeah. the the uh, actual what the moon's made of. If if you want to work out what a planet's made of, you put one probe on one side, on the other side you hit it with like basically a yeah. con- missile, and then yeah, yeah. based yeah, yeah. on the vibrations you can work so, out. The yeah, you can see composition. That, that it's not hollow and it's not a spacecraft. That's what they want you to think. Yes, I know that's what they want you to think. So that's L2. I, I feel as though I've got like it's slightly better in my head mm. now about yeah, Lagrange that, points. If, if the moon isn't a spacecraft, then how does it move around? <laughs> it's a really good point. <laughs> Maybe it's not moving. It's just... Maybe it's, Earth's moving around it. N- no, it's, it's, there's a rotating frame of reference that's, that's where the moon is still <laughs> and everything else is moving. I don't think, I think rotation is relative, though. Unlike, oh, unlike I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, so get this, James Webb Telescope. How many months do you think it will take to cool down? Six, four months. So, Oof. which so it's not going to do any science until June. Even when it gets there, when it's ready to go, it's all unpacked. It's got to cool down, and it's got to cool down to something absolutely insane. It's got to cool down. One Kelvin? No, no. It's it's a little bit higher than that. Two it's Kelvin? 40 degrees above absolute zero. So 40K, 40 Kelvin. So minus 233 degrees centigrade. And of course, you've got to get that down because it's looking for heat. It's looking. That is what that is what its instrument picks up, infrared. Almost certainly, the moment it's switched on, see the most distant galaxy ever recorded like in its first few moments yeah i mean how much better is this than hubble it's at least 10 or 100 times more powerful at least yeah 100 times more powerful <laughs> yeah well that's why it's so expensive 
So one thing that's really, really good is to look at the management technique that was absolutely slated by the 2010 <laughs> report into the management of the James Webb Telescope, where essentially they underestimated the price and then continued to stick their head in the sand every time everyone was saying, this is massively running over budget. And it was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Let's just keep asking for more money. And it's like they should have just said, like this original this original estimate was just totally, was total garbage. Uh, but the sort of money spent on the spacecraft and the fact that it has deployed, I mean, it's risky as hell. It was 100 times cheaper than uh, F-35 or something. So, Well, yeah, but it's one object with one single point of failure, whereas the F-35 program, I guess... It's a range. It's a range of, of objects. <laughs> killing machines. <laughs> killing machines. <laughs> or, or protection machines. You could see Peacekeeping machines. Peacekeeping machines, yeah. I mean, that that's the thing, isn't it? You, you wouldn't want your country without a military. That is a good point. When there's, when there's bad guys out there, George, there's bad guys. Yeah, the only thing that can stop a good, bad guy with an F-35 <laughs> is a good guy, guy with, with an F-35. F-35. With better weaponry on it. Yeah, and a nuke. <laughs> so yeah the, so we, we've got uh, more more spacecraft joining james webb uh in in isa isa is sending out plato and ariel out there uh and you've got the nancy grace roman space telescope that is planning to go out there in 2027 so there's it's it's going to get a bit crowded but apparently not if you think at how big those orbits are, that the orbits are bigger than the orbits out to the moon around that Lagrange point. So, there's, so there's plenty of space out there. Space is massive, George. Say that again. So the distance from the Earth to the, to the moon, moon is smaller, smaller than, than the distance the, from, from the James, James Webb to the, the Lagrange point. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. I, I always imagined it as like a centimetre orbit or something. <laughs> yeah. Like just like a bit a bit of wobble. A bit of wobble, yeah, but it's not. It's, it's so, it's like about as much like as a that. wobble. It would be it would be more accurate to say that the moon orbiting the Earth is a wobble. Yeah. Than to say, yeah, that's, that's kind of, there's, yeah. there's a lot of space out there. Even in the, even in the Earth-Moon system. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of space out there. Now, talking of space, George, uh, another paper that's come out, which is quite exciting, uh, is about how uh, astronomers are closing in on the detection of a new type of gravitational wave, or, or actually a new way of detecting them. Either. This is like a new force. Well, no, it's basically they've always theorised that there's so many of these black holes in the in the universe. There's lots and lots of massive, supermassive black holes, right? Not so all the all the kind of black holes that we've seen so far are all the all these kind of um, gravitational wave events have either been neutron stars, black holes, and that's it. So smallish black holes and neutron stars. And pulsars. So what happens is, you know, they, they get into orbit around each other and they whiz very, very fast and create these very fast ripples, like chucking a rock into a into a pond, right? <laughs> There's something very, very fast. So it's like throwing a stone into a throwing a small pebble into into a, into a lake. Now, 
so LIGO and things like that are really well suited to picking up those those types of ripples. So we're starting to detect those gravitational waves. But what they want to do is use the timing of pulsars. So say you've got like your analyze, say you're looking out and you see pulsars and they're a bit like buoys or buoys as the Americans might call them. Or as it's spelt. Or as it's spelt, yes. I'm sorry, <laughs> Americans, that's our fault. Uh, the um, So the, the buoys out in, imagine them out in the ocean, you can see them bobbing up and down. And from that, if say, if say if the ocean was completely black, it was pitch black, but each of the buoys had a little light on them, maybe you could work out roughly how big the waves were around you and what was happening, right? But you would need more than one of them because as you were going up and down over one wave, you're going up and down a different wave to the one that the buoy's going over. And you might have other waves coming across. Oh, so you have to take into account your own Yeah, you have to, Yes. So get, not only do you have to get this, so it, for this measurement to work, so what they're trying to do is find these very long ripples that may last years, weeks, months, years of, of a big ripple that goes through. And this is caused by supermassive black holes, like at the centre of galaxies, orbiting one another. Does it use like Fourier transforms and stuff? Well, yes. I mean, imagine the Fourier transform definitely comes into some of the equations That's to amazing, try amazing get rid of the noise. Yeah. How much of what we've talked about has been 18th century, like 17th century um, uh, maths and stuff? Oh, yeah. No, like Euler, both- Euler and Lagrange, <laughs> Lagrange. Are both from the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. Euler, Lagrange, Fourier, Newton. Yeah, we had to we had to have mentioned those. <laughs> yeah, Newton, Fourier, Lagrange, and yeah, I mean, yes, I talk about absolutely. Like, was it Euler who first discovered Lagrange points? Yeah, so Euler f- discovered L1, L2, and L3, and Lagrange discovered the two stable L4s and L5. I think people kind of um look over Euler a bit because, like, yeah, but he does have a he does he does have a pretty important symbol. Like, uh, like, well, he's I, E. Yeah, he also yeah. could discover. He discovered sums E. <laughs> sums. <laughs> yeah, but let, okay. <laughs> Moving on from Euler because he is an absolute Jew. So you've got these enormous waves caused by by gigantic black holes orbiting one another, and so in other words, there's this kind of ripple that's permanently going on, uh, and and this can this can move the Earth meters, right? these enormous ripples. But to, to be able to measure this accurately enough, you have to know the centre of the solar system, as in the centre of mass of the solar system. It's called the Barry centre. The Barry centre of the whole solar system to, to an accuracy of like a, a 100 miles or something. It was 100 metres. 100 metres. Oh, my God. So it's, it, you know, it's absolutely absurd how ridiculously accurate that has to be. Yeah. Um, to, within to be able nine to Usain Bolt seconds. Mm. There's this group called the International Pulsar Timing Array, the IPTA. And it's a collaboration of lots and lots of different places where they're trying to use all the data collected on pulsars. So just to recap, pulsars are just these beacons that are so repetitive. You can use, just like we used quartz in digital watches because of the way that they vibrate under an electrical signal, you can use... You can use pulsars as little clocks because they're so stable and so accurate. You can measure the timing of them very, very accurate. But of course, if the space in between you and that pulsar is being stretched, 
then then the timing changes ever so slightly. So you can measure that little change. But there's lots of other things that you need to get rid of, noise like things getting in the way, like electrons getting in the way and, and, and stuff like that, that could be affecting the signal. And, of course, other gravitational events. You know, there's can be other, you know, the, the water's very choppy between us and all the pulsars, and you're trying to look for these much longer waves. So you're trying to get rid of all the noise. Now, the really exciting thing is what you'd expect if there wasn't any of this kind of stuff is white noise, white noise being really equal across all the entire spectrum. Pure randomness. Yeah, pure randomness in a way, yeah. And uh, But what they have discovered is that they've found that they've got this background noise that's actually red. So it's actually a red noise that's going on. What, how is red noise defined? Well, it, 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 there will be a sort of component of it, I guess, in, at one end of the spectrum, that's that's noisier than the other end of the spectrum. In other words, there's there's some there's a there's a signal in there. Some bias. Some bias. Yeah, because yeah, I, yeah. I, I I've always um wondered what like the colours of the noises are because I I have a synth that has pink noise. Well, yeah. Well, pink noise is equal equal energy per octave rather than equal energy per frequency. Ah. So so that's why it goes and pink noise goes. Um, white noise goes shh and pink noise goes because um, it's giving more it's giving it's giving as much energy between 200 and 400 as it is between 2000 and 4000 ah so it's kind of logarithmically yes logarithm it's changing logarithmically and is that like, is that yeah. called pink just arbitrarily or is it yeah i think it- i think so, well i guess i wonder if light has because there's lots of different noises as well there, the famously of course there's the brown noise do you know what that is <laughs> <laughs> is that an uh, th- 15 hertz yeah that makes, 50, you yeah, makes, you, makes you go for a poo yeah which they decided not to use in war because it's such a low frequency you can't direct it so everyone shits themselves <laughs> sure you can direct sound right? oh, no, no not low fre- no yeah, we're yeah, not yeah. low not low frequencies the, the oh, lower, lower want to have a bomb like, like a, a mortar that launches a uh, you know, like a really big speaker over to the. You're enemy never going to let me finish this story. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on, go on. So anyway, we, we uh, as the, as these as these gravity waves get white, further and further apart. You know, from milliseconds to hours to years to millions of years, you have to use different ways of measure the, measuring it. So milliseconds, obviously, you can use that using ground based. Uh, interferometers like LIGO. Obviously. Obviously. So, which, which they have been doing, right? Now, the next thing is to get binary supermassive black hole mergers. And we'll only be able to do things like that when we start having space-based interferometers, which which ESA actually sent up their um, test one at the beginning of the podcast is something that we covered, LISA. LISA Pathfinder was sent. So LISA will hopefully be a space-based laser where you can in, you, you have these very, very long arms, but in space you can have them really long and fire lasers, and you can therefore it'll be more accurate and you can and you can see things coming in. And again, you can cool them to much so so your instruments are better. Now they they will measure um they'll be able to measure black hole super binary supermassive black hole mergers that last hours. Then, using pulsar timing techniques, you should be able to see gravitational waves that last for years. That it, you know that the cre- that the frequency is years. The crest 
of one wave is a is a year behind the crest of the previous wave so you know so that's the periodicity of of the uh, of the wave itself and millions of years you can see in the cosmic microwave background so w map has kind of already seen interesting her but yes yeah, so this is the first time they've seen this red noise signal they're not calling it a slam dunk there's loads and loads of stuff they have to do to rule out other noises that have caused it other reasons why you have this signal it could be that there's something odd in the way that pulsars spin down for example the fact that they've seen it means that it hasn't been ruled out mm. if they didn't see it in with the amount of data that they've got it would mean that they were barking up the wrong tree. Could it not be like some kind of systematic error in the in the measuring? Well, it could be, yeah. So, so that so they're not so no one's getting a Nobel Prize just yet, but they think in the paper that there's enough data now to be able to nail it down and say, yeah, we 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 found this. So they they think the data's already been collected. It's just now the number crunching and the supercomputer time and the physics and the maths et cetera et cetera uh, to just get it to that point where they can say, do you know what? This is this is a signal that we're seeing of very large supermassive massive black holes with undulating undulating year long waves that are going through us all the time. So it's like another level yeah it's like it's a bit like imagine the wind the wind are like pulsars collapsing and and they're creating ripples on the surface of the swell the, the, the swell so, so you've the, got this swell you've got mm-hmm. this so the big swell is the year-long the main swell yeah you know like the tide yeah, yeah. and then no no not the tides like the year-long yeah well just the swell of the you know what yeah the, and then you've got the swell tides in the ocean is the and next then, one and, along. and then you've got the wind blowing ripples of waves over the top of that so you know it's complicated yeah you've got like levels of of waves different frequencies of waves in and fact, we've discovered a new a new, yeah. the lowest, yeah. new lowest. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that we're trying. To, that's what they're trying to crack, and it looks like they're getting there. So, Is there any reason to think that it would go all the way down? Like there's just an infinite number of frequencies. No, because because obviously once you get down to the cosmic microwave background, that's like that's it. That's the beginning of the. No, universe. but I mean the other direct in the other direction of. Of of really slow free so like there might be one half of the of the frequency that what we just like discovered. sub millimeter gravitational waves yeah yeah very high frequency not yeah. very low yeah yeah, yeah so that's what I meant. super high frequency well I don't see why not yeah I mean I guess if you've got two tiny black holes like proton sized black holes spinning around each other they they must be generating gravitational waves what so notes the universe then. What notes? Yeah, what, what, if it, if it, if like, oh, what, yeah, that's true. There might there, there might be a little note. If they're all there. like multiples of each other. Well, there's the lowest note that's been photographed, isn't there? Where there's a there has been a black hole explosion and it's worked its way F through sharp. the dust. No, it's it's it is something like F sharp minus uh, uh, minus twenty seven octaves below middle C. <laughs> I I just made it up F sharp. I don't know. No, no, it is. I think it is F sharp. It's something ridiculous, but there is a, there is the lowest. It's one of the notes. notes. One of yeah, the twelve. It's one of the notes, but it's twenty-seven <laughs> octaves. Yeah, below I've, I've heard. Seat. I've heard it is, yeah, yeah. is very below middle. Yeah, season. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, George, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast again. It's been a pleasure. I, I, I've really enjoyed looking at this week's science. Should do it more often, shouldn't we? Yeah, like once a week or something. Yeah, let's do it once a week. Um, Right, that's it. Um, Shall we say bye-bye to the Spodcats? Uh, Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Bye!
Goodbye, Spot Cat.